as we talk about joy, if we could be honest, does anybody else feel like you're, you're sort of forced to perform, be performatively joyful this time of year? Like that if you're not, there's something wrong with you. If you're feeling a little grinchy or a little scroogey, that maybe there's some sort of flaw in your spirituality. Um, one of my favorite lines from one of the most heartwarming Christmas movies of all time, you may have heard of it. It's called National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. It's when Ellen Griswold is talking to her kids about all the family being there, and she says this, I don't know what to say except it's Christmas and we're all in misery. And if, if, if that's not honest, I don't know what is. Um, what often happens this time of year is we, we sort of are forced to perform joy to somehow prove something to ourselves or to the people around us. And the reality is joy sometimes feels, a, it can feel a little inappropriate. Like if you, if you pay attention to what's going on in the world, sometimes it could be like, if I was really happy right now about everything, maybe I wouldn't be paying attention. And for all the singing of joy to the world, sometimes I just want to respond back to that. Have you seen the world? Joy to the world, have you seen it? The world is in crisis in so many ways. We have violence proliferating in our culture, both physical violence with so many mass shootings. I was on a, the phone a week ago Friday with a friend from Australia who joins Grace Point um, online. And we had found that sweet spot when it was super early morning for him, but not super late in the day here. Um, and while we were having this conversation just about this, that, and the other, he says, hey, by the way, what's up with the mass shootings in America? I was like, I'm asking the same question as an American. We have violence all around us. And not only do we have physical violence, we have what we might call rhetorical violence or violence through words and through language. Have you, if you've been on Twitter lately and seen that the spike in hate speech um, with the lack of regulation, there, there's so many, there's so much violence around us. And then you have to think about climate change and what's happening to our planet. And you think about hunger and poverty, and the folks in our community who are unhoused, and there are so many problems in the world around us. And it can feel a little bit like just kind of plugging your ears and going, la, 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 to talk about joy. And yet we come to this week in Advent, and that's the theme. And it's deeply built in and interwoven into the Jesus Christmas story, this idea of joy. And so what I wanna promise you on the front end is today we're not gonna talk about toxic positivity. Right, We're not going to say today that if you aren't feeling joy, that somehow there's something wrong with you. That if you aren't happy, happy, joy, joy, any Ren and Stimpy fans from back in the day, if that's not where you're locating yourself right now, that somehow your spirituality's off or that the problem is with you, there's a lot of problems in the world. And there's a lot of really, really good valid reasons to not feel overflowing with joy. I actually don't even know that that's what joy ultimately is. I don't know that joy is sort of having the bounce in your step. I think it could actually be something else. So we're not going to get into toxic positivity. We're not going to say fake it till you make it. We're going to talk about joy within the context of where we find ourselves. And is joy possible? Because here's the thing. If joy, some level of joy actually becomes possible in the context we find ourselves in, that could be a game changer. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about what that looks like. And, and I want to talk about that through the lens of this Jesus story, this Christmas story. Uh, one of the things that I, I feel like we forget is that if you begin reading the Bible in the Gospel of Matthew, you've missed a lot, right? And we talked about this last week, this growing, rising problem of anti-Semitism where um, one of the subtle ways we participate in that is by essentially saying, well, the Old Testament, Hebrew Bible doesn't matter, it's all New Testament. Here's the problem. Um, if you begin with the book of Matthew, it's like starting in episode four. Who does that? 
besides George Lucas? Who, who begins that many episodes in? And so to give a little context, when Jesus was born, whenever that happened, sometime in the year six or four BCE, whenever Jesus entered the world, he entered the world into a context. And that context had thousands of years of history and thousands of years of oppression. The people he was born into had known oppression from their very beginnings. Right, the foundational narrative of the Hebrew Bible is the Exodus narrative, a group of enslaved people being liberated from captivity. But that isn't the only narrative of oppression in the Hebrew scriptures. You have the Assyrian Empire who completely wipes out the northern kingdom of Israel. They're lost to history, 10 tribes gone. Then you have the Babylonians who came to town and wiped out Jerusalem and tore the temple down and burned it to the ground and took people into exile. And then you have the Persian empire. And after the Persians, you end up with the Greeks. And after the Greeks, you end up with the Romans. And when Jesus was born, the Roman empire ruled the world. And the Roman empire did what empires do. I was talking with a friend this week and they're like, you know, by global standards, Rome wasn't the worst empire that's ever been seen in the world. And I think that that's true. And also it depends on who you ask. Because if you ask the people on the ground experiencing the oppression and the poverty that empire brought to them, I bet they would say it was pretty horrible. And Jesus was born into this context of a people who uh, were, empires essentially come in and extract, right? They come in, they colonize and they extract, they take. And when Jesus was born, he was born into this context where Rome had come into his land, his people's land, and they had essentially taken everything they could get out of it, not only through taxation, but through land stealing, through uh, putting people in such debt that they could never recover. I really do think when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, give us today our daily bread, that was not poetic. I really don't think he was being poetic. I think he was saying, this is literally our concern. I mean, what two things show up in the Lord's prayer? bread for today and forgive us our debts. I also don't think he was talking about sin. I think he was literally talking about debts because the two things that would put you in big trouble in Jesus' world is if you didn't have enough food to eat and if you were over under to a creditor. And so Jesus was born into this context and into a group of people who um, did not have power to a, a people who had not known freedom in a very long time. And into that context, the Christmas story comes. And I want to begin kind of into the story. Jesus has been born in Luke's gospel. And uh, this is sort of the big announcement uh, from Luke chapter two, verse eight. Now in that same region, there were shepherds living in the fields, keeping watch over their flocks by night. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them. The glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified. Anybody else grow up reading the King James Bible? You know, the one Jesus read? Anybody grew up with that one? Um, and it said, sore afraid. And you always probably, like I read it, sore and afraid. Like anytime an angel shows up, you immediately, it's like you're 40 and you just took a nap, right? And you wake up and you're just in deep pain all over your body. Um, they were terrified, but the angel said to them, do not be afraid for see, I am bringing you good news, which is where we get the word gospel. I'm bringing you gospel of great Joy And the actual, like literal Greek rendering there is like mega joy. I'm bringing you a gospel, an announcement of good news. And this good news is mega joy for all the people. To you is, is born this day in the city of David, Bethlehem, a savior who is the Messiah, the Lord. 
I think there's an interesting thing that every time you have one of these sort of dramatic encounters where God sends a messenger to talk to people, they're immediately freaked out by it. And the first thing that the angels start saying is, whoa, 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 don't be afraid. I think there's some kind of connection there with joy. So what I want to do is I just want to talk about joy in connection to three different things. I want to talk about joy in connection to fear. I want to talk about joy and hope. I want to talk about joy and resistance. And then we'll all go to lunch and watch the Titans game. Does that sound like a fair, a fair thing? Yeah. I don't know if that was for the sermon or lunch, but I'm going to assume. So here's the thing. Joy has a, a deep interconnected relationship with fear. And what I mean by that is when fear is present, joy cannot be. Um, have you ever watched one of, you ever been watching the news and they zoom into one of those political rallies where people are all gathered around the, the, the other people they hate? And they are on camera and they have the politician up there who's saying all sorts of things that you could fact check away. And they're stoking people's biases and they're stoking their anger and they're essentially trying to make them afraid. Have you ever watched one of those things and thought, man, that's a joyful people? They're passionate. They're full of anger. They're afraid. And the people in front of them are trying to make them more afraid. That's not joy. Because fear crowds out joy. And and fear and joy both are about possibility, right? Fear is about what might happen and it's going to be bad. Does anybody's brain go there automatically? Like when somebody's like, hey, I'd really like to get coffee and talk to you. What is your initial response? I now, I've been a pastor for over 20 years. I'm like, I'm going to need that request in writing and I'm going to need to tell me what it's about so that we're not getting uh, ambushed here, right? Like my mind tends to want to go down the path of all the things that might possibly be wrong and how do I protect myself from it? What what could go sideways here? And fear does that. Fear causes us to imagine the worst case scenario and then in some ways to enact it like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Fear is about possibility, but so is joy. Joy is about possibility. Joy is about the what if, but What if everything doesn't fall apart? What if the world could be transformed? What if it could all get better? What if, if we show up and engage and use our abilities and our creativity and our ingenuity, what if we show up and we're present and we put everything we've got into this thing, what might be possible? Joy and fear about possibility. And both of them are ultimately contagious. You ever been around a person that that maybe they're not happy, clappy and all of that, but they just have like a, like in their being is a sense of joy and possibility about what could be in the world. You ever talk to somebody like that? Every time I do, I walk away thinking, yeah, good things are possible in the world. Anything's possible. And if I spend time with somebody who's completely invested in fear and creating fear and sharing fear, I can walk away feeling like the world is completely on fire and there's no water to put it out. Anybody else have that experience? They're both really contagious. And I think that that is what, one of the things I find so compelling about Jesus is, I think Jesus is a human being who other people, he called them away from their fears. He called them away from the possibility, like what could go wrong? And into what might be possible? I often think about the story of uh, Simon Peter walking on water. You know that story, Um, which lots of scholars say has actually been put back into the gospel, but it's actually a reference to the resurrection, right? Where where Jesus has gone and the disciples are afraid and yet they still experience him after his death. 
Um, either way, there's Simon Peter gets out of the boat and he walks on the water and what happens to him? Anybody? He starts to sink and we have ridiculed that guy for 2,000 years. He walked on water for a hot second. Like, I haven't done that. He had the courage to get out of this boat and just like levitate on the water. That's pretty incredible. And yet he starts to sink. And what does Jesus do? He reaches out and grabs him and he finds that in the moment of sinking, as he steps out beyond his limitations, as he steps out and moves past fear and he begins to sink, he's always being caught. I think there's something about Jesus that invited people away from that, which is why anytime Jesus is being used and invoked in a way that stokes fear, I think we're dealing with a counterfeit Jesus. Because this Jesus, the one I keep finding again and again in the Bible, they kept telling me to read, is this Jesus who calls people beyond their fears and into the fullness of humanity. One of my favorite writers, John Shelby Spong, in his book, Jesus for the Non-Religious, he says this, I've sought to understand Jesus as a boundary breaker, as one who calls people to step outside the circles of their security systems. His, his was a life that recognized the reality that fear stifles humanity, builds protective walls, creates defining prejudices, and erects religious systems designed to give security to chronically frightened people. To walk the Christ path is to be empowered to step outside and beyond these various human security systems. It is to walk beyond all religious forms that bind our humanity in order to enter the religionless world of a new humanity. It is to seek divinity, not externally, but as the deepest dimension of what it means to be human. It is to enter divinity only when we become free to give ourselves away. Wow, what? Is that the Jesus you've known? It's the Jesus I want to know, this Jesus who calls me beyond my security systems, beyond my grasping and holding on to, beyond the, the fear that wants to direct every decision I make. This Jesus calls me beyond that and into a place of realizing, actually, there's no such thing as security. It is a myth they try to give us, that religion tries to give us to keep us cooperative. And yet when you move beyond that, when you leave the boat, when you sort of have this sinking, swimming relationship with the water around you, there's something that begins to happen that calls, calls you beyond fear and into what he calls the fullness of humanity. Fear chokes the life out of joy. And, and I don't mean happy clappy, right? I think joy looks really different with everybody. I think you and I all have our own unique experiences of joy. I think there are some people who, if you ask them if they were experiencing joy, they're like, yes. And they really are. Like, we don't get to decide how people should be joyful. But I think that when fear is present, it limits and pushes joy out of the picture. And I ultimately think joy is is actually about hope. And I don't mean joy is about hope, which is grounded in naivete, right? I don't mean it's looking at the world going there, you know, sort of we've, we've talked about what Brueggemann, Walter Brueggemann talks about this. There is um, orientation, disorientation, new orientation. I'm not talking about joy is grounded in hope and orientation, which is there are no problems in the world. Everything's always gone well for me. I've never had a bad experience, never lost anything, never uh, made a mistake. Everything's just great. I'm talking about joy is grounded in this hope that has seen some stuff and refuses to give up. It's joy that is grounded in hope that has been somewhere and knows how dark the world can be and how painful it can be, knows the hurt and tragedy of the world, and yet looks to the future and says, but, but it's not over. There's this great line in the book of Hebrews where the the writer's talking about Jesus, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the sake of the joy that was set before him endured the cross. I find it fascinating that the earliest Jesus followers would adopt a a cross 
as their symbol. Because it would be like somebody wearing an electric chair around their neck. Would you find that odd if you saw somebody doing that? Yeah, it's a little strange. And yet these first, not Christians, they weren't called that, but these first Jesus followers, that whole experience had been so transformed for them that they saw in the cross not an object of shame and guilt and abandonment, but an object that had transformed their understanding of who God was and what it meant to be human in the world. I think joy is grounded in that kind of hope. Every time I watch Dr. King's last speech, I'm just unbelievably moved. Have you seen it? It's called the mountaintop speech. And the night before he was assassinated in Memphis, he gives this speech where he's talking about how he doesn't know how much longer he's going to be around. The, the forces are, are pushing in. And yet he, he uses this, he evokes this image of Moses from the Hebrew scriptures where Moses doesn't enter the promised land, but he goes up on a mountain and he looks over and he sees it. And King was saying, that's where I feel like I am. I may not get to the promised land, but I'm looking over and I promise you it is going to get better. How things are, it's not how they're going to be forever. And every time I watch that, I think, my God, knowing everything he knew, knowing the amount of times he had been beaten and arrested, knowing the terrible things that white supremacists in this country were doing to people, knowing all of that information, he still stood and he looked out and he had this sense of inexplicable joy, uh, joyous hope that even though I may not get there, this is going somewhere better. And, and we are still not there yet. But I, I think if King had looked out and saw, pro, like he was seeing the progress in his own time and longing and hoping for that work to continue. See, I think joy isn't this thing that just sort of tunes out the world around it. I think joy is aware that there are real problems in the world. Joy is aware that we have a lot against us as a species. And by the way, all of it is from us. Like The problems in the world we have created, which means one of the things that frustrates me is when people look at the world, they they look at the, let's say income inequality, like that's just how it is. It's how it always has been. Yeah, because we always have been doing it. What if we changed the game? What if we changed the world? What if we changed the system? What if we changed everything? And I think joy as hope looks at all the problems and says, yeah, there's a whole lot of problems, but this is all heading somewhere. And if we show up and participate and do the thing we know is right and just and good, it could be headed somewhere really good. It could be headed somewhere better. How things, I'm going to say this every week of Advent, how things are isn't how it always has to be. I think that's what joy is hope is grounded in. And then joy is resistance. I love this idea of joy is resistance. Uh, I first heard this from a poet named Toy Derricott. In one of her poems, she begins with that line, joy is an act of resistance. Now think about Jesus in the context of Roman oppression. You know the thing Jesus did all the time in the context of Roman oppression? Like, he's oppressed, his life is being threatened. What do you think he does? He gets people together, they get around a table, the wine starts flowing, the bread gets brought out, and they begin celebrating as if the world was already right. You realize that's what Jesus' meals were about, right? Like God's kingdom is coming, but it's not just coming. It's already here if we have eyes to see it. We can enter it now. And so the way Jesus conducted his work was we're going to celebrate together as if God's kingdom was already here fully and completely and beautifully in the world, what would God's kingdom look like? It would look like everybody being equal around the same table, sharing the same food and nobody going away hungry. 
It was a way of saying, out here in this world, Rome doesn't do it this way, but in this community, we are going to do it this way until the whole world does it this way. We are going to celebrate as equals around good food and drink until everybody has enough food to eat and until everybody's treated as an equal in the world. Joy as resistance against the brutality and dehumanization of the world. Not pretending there are no problems. Actually, you need joy as resistance because you're aware of the problems. The early Christian writers, the early um, writers of the Gospels, for example, they, they talked about the story of Jesus as new creation bursting forth right in the middle of the old. In the Gospel of John, the resurrection happens in a garden tomb. Right? Where, where does creation begin in the Bible? It begins in a garden. And what they're trying to wink, wink, nudge, nudge is say there's something new happening. There's a new way of being human. There's a new way of life in the world that if we just see it and engage it, it could transform everything. But will we have eyes to see? And not only will we have eyes to see, will we have the moral courage to do what it needs to be done? Because for the world to be transformed, it might inconvenience my life just a bit. Are we willing to do what needs to be done? Not through acts of hate and violence, but through acts of compassion and generosity. Will we do what needs to be done? What would joy look like as resistance in this moment we find ourselves in? Not allowing ourselves to be dragged into the fear and the hopelessness that's around us, but living with this confidence, maybe a quiet confidence, that if we show up and do the things we've been given to do in the world, that this could all head somewhere better. And that's why I think it's really important to talk about joy. Even though it feels a little weird, maybe, with what's going on in the world around us, it's actually important to talk about joy because if we allow them to take joy from us, then ultimately they get it all. I think that's why Jesus told his followers. And by the way, after his death, how did they first experience him in the Gospel of Luke? They experienced him around a table, breaking bread and doing the very thing. Like, oh, this is, this is the thing he taught us. This is the kingdom experience. This is transforming the world one bite of bread and one drink of wine at a time. One of my favorite poets, which she gets read around here a lot, but Mary Oliver she has a beautiful poem called Don't Hesitate. We'll wrap with this. If you suddenly and unexpectedly feel joy, don't hesitate. Give into it. There are plenty of lives and whole towns destroyed or about to be. We are not wise and not very often kind, and much can never be redeemed. Still, life has some possibility left. Perhaps that is its way of fighting back, that something happens, that sometimes something happens better than all the riches or power in the world. It could be anything, but very likely you notice it in the instant when love begins. Anyway, that's often the case. Anyway, whatever it is, don't be afraid of its plenty. Joy is not made to be a crumb. Isn't that a great line? Joy is not made to be a crumb. How many of you, when you think about the world around you and you feel joy, you automatically feel guilt? Because, gosh, I don't have, like, that, that's all so awful, and here I am, excited about the new Taylor Swift album or something. And the brilliant Mary Oliver says, no, 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 no. Joy is a resistance against all the hopelessness, despair, hate, darkness, and fear of the world. 
and it is not made to be a crumb. Do not be embarrassed about joy. But instead, she says, make space for it, open your arms to it, and allow it to take you where it wants you to go. I think joy, actually, when understood not through the lens of fake it till you make it, pretend to be happy, but joy, this deep sense that with everything against us in the world, this thing could go somewhere beautiful if we just show up. I think we need that now more than ever.